If you have your Bible, can you turn with me to Luke chapter 19? And we're going to read from verses 45 in chapter 19 through to verse 8 in chapter 20. So this is the word of God that we come to here tonight. As Luke writes, he says, And he, that is Jesus Christ, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things or or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We'll finish our reading there, and we trust that the Lord will bless the public reading of his holy word. Would you turn uh, in the passage of Scripture to the passage of Scripture that David read to us in Luke chapter 19, uh, to that well-known incident in the life of the Lord where he clears the temple. So, Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 45. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Charles Wesley wrote many great hymns, but that's not one of them. Uh, Jesus certainly was gentle, meek, and mild, but he was also strong, determined, and fierce at times. The gentle lamb is also the lion of Judah. And even during the days of his flesh, that anger Um, burst forth uh, and revealed itself in tooth and claw that the lamb roared. And yet, when you speak to the average man in the street about Jesus, he thinks, and this is the danger of that hymn, he thinks of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He pictures the Lord as a slightly effeminate elder brother who wouldn't say boo to a goose. And perhaps that's why they don't fear him as they should, or respond to him uh, in the way that they ought to, and why they can use his name so flippantly. But in the New Testament, we are given a completely different picture. Jesus is gentle. He is meek. He is mild. But he's not just those things. He's strong. He's fearful. He's majestic. He's awesome. And at times, he's fierce. He can be provoked. He does get angry. Now, that's why this passage before us is so important. Here we see another side of Jesus' side that at best we ignore and at worst we modify and water down. And as we come to these verses, I want you to notice three things, the anger of Jesus, the priority of Jesus, and the refusal of Jesus. So, first of all, then, the anger of Jesus. Look at verses 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In verse 46, we're told that 
Jesus began to drive out those that were selling. Matthew and Mark tell us that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. John tells us on an earlier occasion, he took a, a whip of cords and drove out not just the animals, but the merchants and the money changers also. He was angry. He was furious. He was enraged. The gentle lamb became the angry lion. And those in the temple who witnessed these events were terrified. We know that they were terrified because Mark tells us in Mark 11 that he didn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As long as he was there, the money changers and the hucksters stayed out. They weren't allowed to come back into the temple. Now, you would presume by sheer weight of numbers that they could have come back in and overpowered Jesus. But there was something in the demeanor of Jesus that made them afraid to disobey Him and defy Him. There was a fierceness about Him. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, yes. But He was also angry Jesus, furious and firm. You know, in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy asked Mr. Beaver uh, about meeting Aslan. And he, she asked, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know that he's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall be nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dear, he said. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. People want to think of Jesus in terms of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, because it domesticates him. It tames him. It makes him safe. But he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. He is the Lion of Judah, the great king, the the king uh, who can be provoked to anger. Now, from the passage, I want you to understand why Jesus became angry. He was provoked by three things. First of all, by their religious racketeering. Look at verse 46. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was set up as a place to worship God, a place where you could meet God. It was there where sacrifices would be offered, where sin could be atoned for, where man could be reconciled to God. But these people turned it into a den of thieves. They used it for commercial gain to make a fast buck. You see, one of the stipulations of the Old Testament was that a sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish. And it was the priest's duty to check the sacrifices to make sure they were acceptable and they met that criteria. But these merchants were selling pre-approved sacrifices, sacrificial animals, selling them at highly inflated uh, prices. The priests and the high priests were, as Ian Paisley would say, in cahoots with those who uh, were... um, Uh, selling and and doing business in the temple courts. 
So the priests would pre-approve these animals for sacrifice. And if anyone brought their own animal, it would simply be rejected. So it was a kind of closed shop. They were forced to buy from these religious racketeers if you wanted your animal accepted by the priests. The money changers were there because Roman money carried the image of the emperor, and no image of anyone was allowed to be brought into the temple uh, at all. So you first of all had to change your money into an acceptable currency, and then you had to buy these pre-approved sacrifices, and from both of those things, these priests would get a cut, a, a backhander. The religious authorities were exploiting the people of God. Now, I know money is important, but beware of religious racketeers who exploit the vulnerable in order to make a quick buck for themselves. Televangelists who drive Bentleys and fly around the world in Learjets and, and build their uh, megachurches on the basis of the guilt of the congregation. Big personalities who are in it for the money. That's religious racketeering, and religious racketeering angers the Lord Jesus Christ. He was angry because of religious racketeering. They turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Secondly, they were angry. He was angry because of irreverence. The temple was God's house. My house shall be a house of prayer. God was there. He dwelt in His house. It was His dwelling place. Now, God is everywhere. God fills heaven and earth, Jeremiah tells us. The psalmist says, if I, if, if I go up to heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will hold me fast. God is everywhere. But under the Old Testament, God particularly manifested His presence in an unusual, in a peculiar way in the temple. He was there in a way that He wasn't anywhere else. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And yet here are people who are exploiting the revealed presence of God for personal gain. They carried out their shady double dealings in the presence of the living God under the pretense that they were worshiping Him, the holy, righteous, eternal God. They were devoid of a fear of God and a reverence for God. Now, we don't have special buildings today. There's no place that we can go to actually meet God in a, in a geographical sense. But you see, when the church comes together, the church, the people of God, form the temple of God. So, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 16, and he says, you plural, I think the NIV to capture the plural says, you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not a problem for us in Northern Ireland because we would just say, yous are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You collectively. Now, he does teach later that the individual Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but in 1 Corinthians 3, he's saying that when the church is assembled, God is there in a way that He's not anywhere else. And if, if God is there when we meet together collectively, we have to meet reverently. Remember the words of Hebrews 12? Let us be thankful and worship God acceptably. 
How do we worship God acceptably? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship must be given in reverence and awe. I suppose today the equivalent of these money changers and merchants would be uh, people using worship to promote, to promote their own interests and to further their own cause, uh, cause, to make money, to feather their own nest, to promote their own ego, to push themselves forward, to draw attention to themselves rather than to God. That angers the Lord Jesus. So why was he angry? Because of their racketeering, because of their irreverence, and thirdly, because of their stubbornness. You see, this wasn't the first time that Jesus cleared the temple. At the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, Jesus cleared the temple then. There are two clearings at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. But these people had reverted to their sinful ways and to their sinful habits, like a dog returning to its vomit as Peter says, or a pig returning to the mud. So they had returned to their sin. Jesus cleared the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and at the end of the ministry, he has to clear it again. And that stubbornness angers the Lord. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But when his people keep on doing the things that they ought not to do and go back to their sinful habits— that does anger him. You know that as a parent, don't you? What angers you most about your children? It's not that they foul up and feel, because all children foul up and feel. But what angers you most is the fact that they, they go back and do the same thing over and over again. And that was the prophet's indictment against um, Israel, that they were a stiff-necked people. The Israelites, says Hosea, are a stubborn people like a heifer. How can the Lord pastor them? So here we see the anger of Jesus. He, he's angry. What angers him? Their religious racketeering, their irreverence, their stubbornness, the anger of Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is the, prior, uh, the priority of Jesus. As I said, we don't have sacred buildings, sacred spaces, special buildings with special promises attached to them in the New Testament. Church buildings today are functional. They are designed to accommodate a congregation and to facilitate the outreach of a church. There's nothing special about the building. When we arrived in, in Bangor and Leslie Hutchison took up the pastorate in, in uh, uh, Ballycrock and we used to meet for coffee and we, one of the common complaints that we shared was that Bangor people referred to the main auditorium as a sanctuary. They, they called it a sanctuary. But there are no sacred places under the new covenant, none whatsoever. This is just a building, and we need to understand that. But the New Testament does teach when that the people of God meet together that He is with them in a way that He's not with the individual. Peter calls the church, the church assembled as the, the house of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's the house of God, the dwelling place of God. Jesus said, when speaking in the context of the church, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So where there are two, there are three. Where there are three, there are four. Where there's 150, there's 151. And where there's 350, there's 351. Jesus is there. 
Peter pictures Christians as living stones who together form the temple of God. That passage that I quoted in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, where Paul says, you are the temple, you plural are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That when the church assembles and gathers, that is sacred. Not the building, but the people. And that's why being online is not ideal. It's, it's not the same as being together as a, as a congregation, because where the two or three are met together, God has promised in a special way that He will be with His people in their assembled congregation. So, it's not ideal, but at least we can meet to, in our own homes to, to worship, but we do miss that fellowship and that connection with one another. But what I want you to notice from this passage is the priorities of Jesus as far as the temple is concerned. Because if, if believers form the temple in the new covenant, then the priorities that He had for the temple of the old covenant ought to be our priorities. And I see three priorities here in Jesus' interaction with the leadership of Israel. Prayer, preaching, and evangelism. So, first of all, prayer. Verse 46, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Here our Lord is quoting from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 and verse 7, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, we're told, God says, my house shall be a house of prayer. That the uh, new temple will be distinguished as a prayer, praying community. And incidentally, that's why in Russia, um, they don't refer to church buildings as churches. They refer to them as prayer houses. But, but under the new covenant, the uh, people of God will be distinguished as a praying community. These people had turned the old temple into a den of robbers, but it was meant to be and ultimately would be a place of prayer. Jesus wants His church to pray. Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence upon God. It's an acknowledgement, as in the words of Jesus, that without me you can do nothing. And the temple of the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ, is to be distinguished by prayer. Someone said this spiritual temperature of any uh, individual or any congregation can be measure, measured at, by their attendance at the prayer meeting. And some of my colleagues, not just in Baptist churches, but other churches, who have quite large congregations, maybe of three or four hundred, tell me that they maybe only get 15 people to the prayer meeting. Well, there's something wrong with that. And to be honest, I often wonder if we didn't actually have a Bible study at our midweek meeting, would we have much of a prayer meeting? Prayer, corporate prayer, Praying together is to be a mark of the new temple, the new covenant community. My house shall be a house of prayer. The second priority I think we see in Jesus here is, is preaching. Look at verse 47. And he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words hanging on His words. The authorized version says we're very attentive, but it literally is to hang on His words. Now, I want you to picture this. 
Here is Jesus being actively opposed by the chief priests, the principal men, and the scribes. And that group together formed the Sanhedrin, that um, Jewish ruling council that consisted of only 70 that were responsible for all Jewish affairs. And they were furious at him, and they were trying to kill him. Perhaps on uh, the way home as he traveled back to Bethany at night, or um, on his way in from Bethany in the morning, but they couldn't get to him. In the face of that threat, Jesus continues fearlessly and faithfully teaching in the temple. They were trying to kill him. They couldn't get to him, but they were trying to kill him. But he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't invite a little group of interested people back to the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany where he was staying, but he courageously went to the temple every day to preach. The money changers, the merchants, the religious establishment were all hostile, but Jesus looks them in the face and carries on teaching the Word of God. Look at chapter 21 and 2. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. As he's preaching and teaching, a delegation of these religious people of the Sanhedrin come to quiz him about his authority for acting in such a manner. And they don't ask him if his message was true, if the gospel was true. All they're interested in is who licensed him to preach. And I want you to notice that after the verbal exchange, what does Jesus do? He just carries on. You see that in verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. Now, when, look at the parable next week, but when you, when you read that parable, this parable is directed to these very um, religious people, this very group that came to protest. You look down to chapter 20 and verse 9. We're told the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him uh, on that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. He just goes for it. He he just boldly and assertively uh, declares the Word of God. Nothing hinders him. Nothing intimidates him. Nothing uh, misdirects him. He just goes on. Now, I believe in preaching. I believe that the exposition and application of the Word of God is essential to the health and growth of the people of God. I believe that with all my heart. It's crucially important that the people of God sit under a a biblically sound ministry. I believe in preaching. But you say to me, well, you would believe that, wouldn't you? It's in your interest to say that. But I want to tell you something this evening that's even more significant. Jesus believes in preaching. It was a priority with him in his life and ministry. Do you remember right back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to the home of Simon Peter. He raised his mother-in-law, and and people are flocking to be healed, and they go to bed late uh, at night. People are there in the morning, and they look for Jesus, and Jesus has disappeared, and they, they find him. And they ask him, they, they see this as a golden opportunity. They ask him uh, where he had gone and would he not come back and heal these people? And he says this, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God 
uh, in other towns and villages too. They wanted him to continue with healing. He says, I, I'm not here simply to heal. I'm here to preach. And when we come to the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost, we discover that when uh, Peter was uh, preaching and the people responded, we're told that those who accepted the word were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Right at the head of that list of those distinguishing marks of the new covenant community is the preaching of the Word of God. Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing, in view of His appearing in the second coming of Christ, I give you this charge, preach the Word. That was to be Timothy's priority. That was to be the focus of his ministry, preaching the Word of God. Now, you know how preaching is under threat today. People want anything and everything but preaching. Preaching is old-fashioned. Preaching is out of date. Uh, preaching is boring. You don't need a pulpit today. People say, get rid of the pulpit. Let's just have a stage and let's be entertained. We need to resist that. Preaching was the priority of Jesus. And as Robert Murray McShane says, the church that despises preaching, God will despise her. And that's why in Baptist churches and Reformed churches, generally, we, we have the pulpit central over and above the communion table. You go to a Catholic church and the pulpit's to one side, and the altar's right in the middle, or an Anglican church, the pulpit is off to one side, and the, the communion table uh, is, is right in the center. But we believe in the priority of the preaching of the Word. And even in our architecture, the, the pulpit is central over and above the communion table. Preaching was a priority of Jesus. So, the priorities of Jesus, prayer, preaching, and then thirdly, evangelism. Why was Jesus so angered with the money changers? After all, these things took place in the temple precincts rather than the temple itself. Well, all the historical evidence points to the fact that these money changers and merchants set up their stalls in the courts of the Gentiles. The temple, you see, was divided into a number of sections. So, right at the heart of the temple, you have the most holy place, where the high priest could only enter once a year. Coming out from that, you had the holy place, where only the high priest could enter. Then you had the priestly court, where the sacrifices were offered that only priests could enter. And you came out a little further, and you had the, the, the court of the men, where only Jewish men could enter. And then coming out from that, you had the, the uh, court of the women, where only Jewish women could enter. And wrapping all around that, encasing all of that, was the court of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentile court was given um, to, by God to Gentiles inquiring after, about, uh, after true religion. It was God's intention that when He called Abraham, that through Abraham, all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But somewhere in the history of the Jews, they lost sight of that vision. They became self-contained and parochial and content with their own number. Indeed, some of the rabbis taught the only reason God had created the Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. So, by the first century, the court of the Gentiles had become redundant. 
They're no longer interested in the conversion of the Gentiles. And so were the the place at the temple that was given to the Gentiles to introduce them to biblical religion and to the true uh, and uh, and living God had become redundant. The place where they could inquire after God had been hijacked by these religious racketeers and was being used for personal gain. They weren't interested in reaching out in introducing people to the true and living God. And the fact that he drove them out indicates that one of the priorities of his people is introducing others to God. The new dwelling place of God, the new temple, the new community must be outward-looking, must be evangelistic if they want to please the Lord Jesus. That the church exists for mission— John MacArthur says, and I think perhaps he pushes it too far, but he says, if if the church's primary purpose in being left in the world was to be holy, then God would just take them straight to heaven, where they would be perfectly holy, without uh, wrinkle or stain or any other blemish. If it was to have a, a deep relationship with God, He would take them straight to heaven, where there would be perfect communion with the living God. If it was to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, He would take them straight to heaven, because as Jonathan Edwards says, heaven is a world of love, and love is perfect in heaven. No, the reason he argues that that Christ has left the church in the world is for mission. The church exists for mission. And any church or individual Christian that is not interested in mission displeases Jesus. They set themselves up in opposition to Jesus. But in this this passage, we're told that evangelistic indifference not only displeases Jesus, it angers Jesus. The Jews had turned the place designed for outreach into a place uh, into a den of robbers, into a place of, uh, 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 into a way of making money. Let's not anger Jesus. Let's be missionary-minded, a missionary-minded church and missionary-minded individuals. Let's make sure that the focus of this church is always reaching out to the lost. Let's endeavor, as Paul says, by all possible means to save some. Our great raison d'etre as a church is to introduce others to Jesus. A famous artist once asked, was asked to paint a picture of a dying church, and everybody thought he would paint a picture of a small group meeting in a dilapidated building. But instead, he painted a, a picture, a painting of a, a large congregation in a new and magnificent building. But near the door, there was an offering box labeled Mission, and it was covered in cobwebs. You see, a church that ceases to be interested in evangelism and mission and reaching out will cease, soon cease to be evangelical. Lack of evangelistic concern angers Jesus. So, you see from this passage the priorities of Jesus, the things that are important to Him, prayer, preaching, and evangelism. The anger of Jesus, the priority of Jesus. The last thing in uh, chapter 20, verses 2 through to 8, the refusal of Jesus. Here we find uh, a team of religious experts coming to investigate Jesus. 
And they asked him in verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who did he think he was? Who gave him this authority to do what he did? Well, Jesus already had answered that. My Father's house shall be a house of prayer. His authority was his Father's authority, a divine authority. It wasn't their house. It was God's house. And that's why he cleared it. But these religious experts didn't listen, and they didn't hear. And they asked, who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus doesn't answer them directly, but he asks a question in verse 4. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, they had rejected John the Baptist and his ministry. His, ba- uh, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. He called people to repent and to be baptized on profession of that repentance, to illustrate, to demonstrate that repentance. But these religious experts, they knew if they said publicly that they didn't accept his ministry, that would anger the people because the people accepted John the Baptist was a prophet from God. So they answered delicately and dishonestly, and they said, we don't know. They refused to face up to the implications of truth. And what I want you to to notice, and this is crucially important, indeed it's very solemn, Jesus says in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus stopped answering them. He refused to discuss it any further. If they rejected the truth, Jesus wasn't going to give them new truth. Many a modern-day evangelist would be um, have come back with a, a retort or uh, engaged them in further discussion or invited them uh, for a Bible study. Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you. If you didn't respond when John preached, I'm not going to discuss it any further. And he has nothing to say to them. It's a serious thing when Jesus stops speaking to you. Here is the Lamb who is angry, who is provoked, and he says, enough is enough. They have rejected the truth long enough, and I have nothing more to say. Jesus has great patience, but he hasn't infinite patience. His patience can run out. You know, in Romans chapter 1, on three occasions, Paul says that God gave them up, God gave them over, or God gave them God had enough. And he says, enough is enough. I have nothing more to say. And he he gives them up to their sinful passions, and he, he withdraws. He abandons them. That's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to be given up by God. That's why the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Because stubbornness angers Jesus. And he is patient, but he has an infinite patience. And that stubbornness and that refusal to listen makes him angry. Be careful. I'm speaking maybe to to non-Christians tonight. You be careful, because God might reach that point that he says, enough as enough. And if you hear his voice, if the Spirit is convicting your heart, then and now is the time to act, to come to Jesus, to seek him while he may be found, to call on him while he is near. You need to act now and give yourself 
over to Jesus. Give yourself up to Jesus. Yield yourself to Jesus. Believe in Jesus before the Lamb roars, before the Lamb becomes angry. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, yes, but also angry Jesus whose patience can be pushed too far and his patience can run out. The anger of Jesus, the priority of Jesus, and the refusal of Jesus. Jesus, as a sobering, had nothing more to say to them. I'm not going to answer you, he says, because you have rejected truth once too often. Amen.